Paul Tweed, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. No problem at all, Matthew. Glad to be here. So you can fact check me a little bit here. You know, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. And certainly you of all people know that. But I know you as uh, you've been dubbed as a celebrity lawyer. You've represented people like Liam Neeson, Justin Timberlake, Jennifer Lopez, Ashton Kutcher, Harrison Ford, Nicolas Cage, Britney Spears. You've done it all. You don't have an office in Hollywood. You don't have an office in L.A., but you have an office right here in Belfast and another one in Dublin. How am I doing so far? Going great. One <laughs> in London as well, but just add on and then get the, full, get the full works. So I'm delighted to have you here. I We've been doing the show for five years. We're about episode 330. And I first came across your name right around like the, the 80 episode mark. And I just remember always walking past. I used to live on the Donegal Road and I would walk down the Dublin Road and I would see a wee plaque that had uh, your former office pre- presence, premises on it. And it just always was in the back of my head. So delighted you're here. If you could just take couple of minutes just to explain your background, how you got into this weird and wonderful world of, of being a defamation lawyer and, and the media uh, presence that you are. No, look, no problem. Uh, I, like most teenagers, hadn't a clue what I wanted to do. <laughs> it's 16, 17. Uh, my mother was getting increasingly impatient with me. Uh, you know, I was really only interested in rugby, football, tennis, squash, any sport at all. And uh, she put pressure on me. She said, look, I want you to go to university and I want you to you know, whatever you want to do, that's up to you. Still couldn't make up my mind. She had been a legal secretary uh, in her former life. It was the only connection we had to law. And she said, look, let's try law. You've got to try and do law. I'd be really, really pleased and proud if you could do that. I said, well, whatever. I had no real, as I say, <laughs> aspirations either way. Um, so I applied uh, for, to do UCA for uh, various universities, including Queen's. Queen's was the only one that gave me an offer. This is during the height of the Troubles, of course, in the late 70s. Nobody really, uh, well, I told myself nobody wanted us. It really was because I hadn't got the qualifications <laughs> to be uh, to be offered a, a, an Oxford place or whatever. So I got into Queen's and uh, the same way I had managed to school, I scraped my way through. Not, I'm certainly never been academic. I've just always been able to do enough to get through all the way through uh, Queen's and then I went into the Legal Institute. I was the first year of what was known as the Institute of Professional Legal Studies. Before that, you you qualified as a solicitor or a barrister through apprenticeship okay. or privilege. Oh, interesting. And uh, so the barristers and solicitors qualified together uh, and that was in 1978. Uh, and uh, again, I managed by the skin of my teeth to scrape through there and <laughs> I, I came out and I didn't, where do I go? Uh, I had no job yeah, You've reached the end of the conveyor belt. It's like, right, what's yeah. what's the next but, thing? It's a wee bit unclear. Yes. <laughs> this episode is part of our ongoing series with NI Connections, where we interview an interesting person from Northern Ireland who's living and slash or working overseas. Now, who are NI Connections? They are the diaspora department of Invest NI, and their mission is really, really simple. It's to connect the Northern Irish community all around the world. They put together some really incredible resources, including how to move you and your family back home if you have been living overseas, how to move to Northern Ireland for the first time, and even how to move your business or open up a new branch in this wonderful place that we call home. You also can find hundreds of interviews and profiles with fascinating people who are proud to call this place home. And you can check out all of these things and sign up for their free email newsletter at niconnections.com. Thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. So anyway, I just followed the pattern. My mother was scanning the jobs. So a job was advertised in Belfast Telegraph by Johnson's, uh, a law firm specialised in conveyancing and corporate work. I had no clue what that was. <laughs> Applied, 
got the job. At this stage, I had run up an overdraft of £13,820 uh, with no idea how Which it was Which is like clear. 50 grand in today's at, money. At least, <laughs> at least. And uh, I was sort of, but I was always very confident. I may not have had the academic ability, mm-hmm. but I had supreme confidence, which I now realise I had stupidly. But anyway, I was offered the job, the grand old annual salary of £2,500. And you were uh, rolling in it. So uh, that were rolling in it, absolutely. A couple of weeks into it, I thought, I can't do this. I was stuck in an office and doing stuff. There was very little litigation in the, in the firm at that time. Uh, I was, and that was sort of gave me some sort of appeal for me. Uh, I thought, mm, can't do this much longer. So I started to apply for jobs that appeared in the Tuesday edition of the London Times, including... First one I applied for was Governor of the Solomon Islands. I thought that'd be quite exotic. <laughs> get me out of Belfast. Didn't get a reply to that one. <laughs> then the next one was to be an IP lawyer. That's intellectual property lawyer with distillers doing looking at trademarks. Didn't know what IP was at that point, but I applied, got an interview, got Ooh. a test, failed, and got unceremoniously dismissed. Then I just I kept going, and I do. I am quite resilient. I then applied for a job in the Cayman Islands and uh, with W.S. Walker and Company. And Mr. Walker himself came to London to do interviews. And much to my astonishment and excitement, uh, I got a letter saying, please come for an interview at the Cavendish Hotel in London. Now, in those days, it was a massive thrill for me to get on a plane to London. And somebody to pay for that flight was just unbelievable. Wow. He did that. Uh, and we had an absolute Brilliant lunch, really enjoyed it. He was a bit of a character. And he just said, look, you know, I have no intention of offering you the job, Paul, but I just want to see who on earth and why anyone could have the balls to apply for a job when they're only wow. a matter of weeks or months out of law school. And I just wanted to speak to you to see. And we did. And with great How crack. Unbelievable and, uh, I, got, I got my, you know, my, my free lunch and uh, trip to London, got back. And I, needless to say, I didn't get the job, of course. But then I started to just explore around. And Johnson's, I thought, right, I just can't, like, transactional work and office work just did not appeal to me. Um, uh, but a few of my friends were getting down to the courts and were litigating and directing for insurance companies. And I thought, mm, this might be quite good. And in, I was very fortunate uh, that there was a very, very well-known senior counsel, uh, one of the top uh, lawyers of his day, Bob McCartney, uh, who was friendly with the senior partner in Johnson's. And he was very good. He actually referred the first sort of insurance company into us. Uh, and I sort of got in, got stuck into that, the work, tried to learn by my state mistakes. And then I saw that a lot of the very successful law firms were getting a lot of work because they were getting close contacts with the claims managers, getting the claims managers to get to know them, mm-hmm. taking them out for lunch. So I, with my overdraft still escalating <laughs> rapidly at this stage, I used my own money to take the, these guys out for lunch. And, and, and where's like the wine and dine spot then? Then it was Thompson's Restaurant in Arthur Street, long yeah. since closed, but that was the place to go wow. in Belfast during the Troubles. And uh, and I actually enjoyed the company of these guys, yeah. uh, and it worked quite well. And eventually, within just over nine years, I built up, I think, 13 insurance companies, and it, it became one of the, the top defence insurance practices in Northern Ireland. So safe to say you cleared your overdraft. So, well, it sort of did because I wasn't a partner yet at this stage. I was ah, doing all this new and, and again, I had expectations, but there were all sorts of issues between the two partners. One wanted me and the other one was very old-fashioned and didn't like insurance work. I think he regarded as beneath him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a corporate lawyer. And for whatever reason, he may or may not have been right. But to cut a short story along, eventually there was a dispute between the partners, A, to get me in. Uh, I was brought in as a partner, continued to build up the firm. But just in 1986, the same Bob McCartney, uh, he and another top 
QC, a guy called Des Bowl, who's one of the top criminal senior counsel today, were accused of fighting over the last chocolate eclair in a Hollywood cake shop. That's Hollywood, Northern Ireland, by the way, not California. One L. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't got to California yet. And uh, we sued the Sunday World. The, the case was driven by Bob McCartney. I knew very little about defamation. Yeah. He, albeit he was a client, was like a larger-than-life character, absolutely charismatic, forced on, and very. It was he came from a very uh, poor working-class background. In the witness box, was able to the Sunday World had goaded him all the way up to, to the, 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 the hearing, uh, but he was able to relate to a seven-person working-class jury, mm. and they got him. They understand why. Okay, it's very trite to say, oh, "Who cares?" Fighting over a last shot, clear. But people were ridiculing him, saying, "You know, hi, quick, hide your buns. Here comes Mr. McCarthy." That sort of thing. Yeah. And for somebody of his stature, mm-hmm. it was critical that his credibility was maintained. They had a great sense of humour, but this was something that they and they goaded him. They goaded him and goaded him. Big mistake. They were awarded 50,000 each, which nice. was a massive sum in 1986. Uh, it wasn't, uh, they, 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 was, they attempted to appeal it, the appeal didn't uh, proceed, so they were left the money. Then, uh, through Bob again, I got introduced to Bar- the late Barney Eastwood, uh, a bookmaker, promoter, successful businessman, absolute character, and he became a wonderful friend of mine Correct. over the years. But during that period, uh, he was fighting with the boxer Barry McGuigan. Uh, there was a raft of litigation uh, in the late 80s. Uh, emanating from uh, McGuigan uh, losing uh, his world title in the desert heat of Las Vegas. And he claimed he'd been injured, whatever. And uh, eventually there were a number of libel actions and a number, quite a bit of litigation going. And then a big case appeared in 1991 where he basically brought out a video saying that he'd been put in the ring with an injured ankle. Uh, that case, uh, Barney and I went out to the States, interviewed all the witnesses, referees, judges, trainers, Physios, everyone. We even interviewed the physio for the LA Lakers basketball team. Class, yeah, yeah. Them. We met everyone, and the case ran in Belfast. Uh, uh, I had a very, very, uh, I would say, a, 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 an intense dislike of McGuigan's solicitor, who I would blame for everything in many ways. Uh, but anyway, to cut the long and short, was the one of the judges actually commented that the correspondence between me and my opposite number was far more defamatory than the actual subject libel wow. in the video. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Vicious case, thought uh, they, we had given, uh, Barney had said, look, he would take a payment to charity as his uh, son, unfortunately, had died tragically in the RVH and he wanted, he said, look, if you make a donation mm. to the RVH intensive care unit, uh, that's it, yep. case is over. Wow. They scorned that. Crazy. Case ran for five and a half weeks, longest in, in Northern Irish, probably Irish uh, legal history, certainly at the time. And again, a uh, five-person, Working class jury heard all the evidence. Were able to say everyone thought we were going to lose. Yeah. Everyone, I even had a judge coming over to me at one point, a neighbour saying, "Look, you know, you're young. You're going to. You're why you like, you can't win this case." And I, I was utterly confident because with Barney, we had spoken to all the witnesses. Like we knew mm-hmm. we, were, we were fine. But anyway, the seven person jury agreed with us. Four hundred and fifty thousand record damages, and it was very significant because that was there was a, an, an issue over a marker, and that figure four fifty was basically so the jury were making a point. Wow! And it was a, an absolute, total and absolute vindication of, of Barney Eastwood. And as I say, he remained remained great friends. I, it was epic crack. We we litigated then various uh, issues over the years. Always won, always won. Really, every single one. Uh, and we had hearings before the British Boxing Board of Control, different things, and we, we always come out on top. And that's not that's not I'm not claiming credit for that. Mm-hmm. That's the credit goes to like the sheer backbone of Barney Eastwood, the backbone of 
people like Bob McCartney, people who had absolute, and I learned from that. Mm-hmm. And so, a sort of a, a below average academic, I suddenly realised there were two things you needed to be a successful media lawyer. Probably a successful lawyer, but particularly a successful media lawyer. And that was judgment and backbone. And there's another word beginning with B that I normally use in these circumstances, but in case there are uh, families, young people listening, we'll say backbone. Those are the two qualities. Never mind about whether you have a first class honours degree in law from Oxford or whether you have read legal books, textbooks, cover to cover. That those two, if you do not have those, both of those qualities, you will never make a successful media lawyer. And so judgment, you mean being able to look at a case, look at all the data in front of you and just know that you know that you know this is going to go the right way for exactly. us. Exactly. And making okay. the right call at the right time. Wow. Some cases need to be settled at a certain stage. Others have, are better. You're better running them mm-hmm. to get it to get them aired. That's a really interesting point. OK, so you, you get a case that's a hypothetical scenario. You know, producer Roska here, uh, someone's defamed him and he's, he's in court and you're his lawyer. And you know, someone comes and offers him, I'll give you 100K just to, just to go away. How do you know, no, 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 we can keep this going. There's, there's, maybe, there's maybe 300K on the table here and we're going to do this, we're going to do that versus like, do you know what, man, you should take the 100K and get out while you still can. Again, and that is a really good example, Matthew, of a judgment call because you've got to always think ahead. Some, I always say to people, you know, if they come in to me and they say to me, how much is this worth? How much is this libel worth? How much am I likely to get in damages? I know that's a very bad omen. That's a very bad sign. Mm-hmm. Because you should only go into libel courts to clear your, vindicate your reputation. Now, sometimes you need a big award to vindicate your reputation. But sometimes, you know, an apology or a vindication in terms of people acknowledging the truth mm-hmm. are far more important. If you're a good end to play the libel lottery, that's a big, big mistake. That is an amazing point. Wow. Yeah. So you've got to always remember that. And, that. and again, you know, even now people still come in and I always know that that is the first, that's a big warning sign, you know, whenever you get that. Whereas other people come in and many, and these are the big stars. I mean, the Hollywood stars that I've acted for over the years, they just want the record set straight Yeah. for a number of reasons. One, obviously to protect their brand, particularly in the era of Instagram, they need it done quickly. They need to get whatever is out there completely uh, removed worldwide Mm -hmm. the false statements they don't say to me you know I want half a million. Yeah. That's not the way it works. Yeah, they're like, mate, I can make half a million. Yeah. yeah but my, my brand is worth a billion. I don't need, I don't need 500k. I don't need it. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. And so that, that principle applies right across the board. I mean, obviously the case is like, you know, I can name drop for the UK and Ireland if you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, all these cases are, it doesn't matter who the person is, you know, whether it's a shopkeeper in corn market or whether, you know, it's an international superstar. The issues are the same, and I'm a bit like the dentist. People don't come to me because they love me. People don't <laughs> even come to me, you know, for any reason other than they've got a particular problem yeah. at a particular moment in time, yeah. and they need it sorted quickly. And many of the people, famous people that I've acted for over the decades, most of them would even know my name now. Sure, you know, to get it. Now there are others, there are exceptions to that. I mean, yeah. I've become very good friends with a number of very, very successful uh, movie stars and people in the music business, but. For the most part, we're we're service providers, mm-hmm. and we just provide the service. But it's unique; it's got to be quick. Mm. I mean, you know, most people, whenever a lot of my colleagues are either on a Saturday morning or out in the golf course, I'm battering away to try and get stuff pulled from the Sunday papers, or on a Friday yeah. night when yeah. I'm looking at that chilled bottle 
of, you know, <laughs> Sancerre wine that I would just love to have a couple of glasses of. I've got to push it to one side yeah, yeah, until yeah. I know the phone stopped. Wow. And if you don't mind me sharing, you know, before recording, you, you mentioned, you know, today you were up at 4 a.m., you're on American time. It's like, you know what it means to work. Yeah. And uh, like you say, you know, there's a lot of people, they'll, they'll get a certain level of success, a certain level of money, and then they'll kind of be like, okay, this is going to take the food off the gas. I want to ask you, at what point in your career, because, you know, there's famous people and then there's famous, famous people. At what point did, or was there a particular case where it was so high profile that you started to get kind of pulled into the media vortex? So I'm thinking in my head, I don't know if any of this ever happened, you know, that the, the reporters are taking pictures of you or the reporters are throwing stuff about you, that it's it's so high profile that you're kind of brought into the tabloids and the journalism and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that. It, what has happened actually, it's got worse or beyond that, I should say. I mean, I've got, we're involved in very contentious litigation at the moment. Uh, and uh, I've had a situation where I've had people following me, uh, <laughs> photographing my family. Uh, I've had, according to Sunday Times, attempts to try and hack into my emails. Uh, I've had clients having their offices bugged. Uh, I've had various situations whereby uh, I know phone, there's attempts to access phones because you know now all they need is a satellite up there. You know the old days of Watergate are long gone. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that and, and I know exactly here this, this is like, you know a very very powerful uh, uh, I'm scared to just say anything the moment there's litigation pending I don't want to prejudice us. Of course. But yeah. that you know I've had to put a complaint in to uh, the UN Special Rapporteur for the protection of judges and lawyers. Uh, I've had to make re- complaints to police. Uh, I, you know that that's the level it's got to. In terms of my profile, I tend to be, I mean, I try to explain to people, you know, I'm associated obviously with my clients because most of my clients want publicity for the apology, want a publicity for the vindication simply to, to mitigate yeah. uh, the damage that's already been caused. And my name, I'm, I'm normally doing it for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people tend to associate. So like I've been accused of being, you know, like I act for everyone, all the political parties here in Northern Ireland, most of the leaders I've advised at some point or other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same in, in the Republic of Ireland and the same in England. Uh, you know, I do work in France I do a lot of work, obviously, in, in the States in terms of working with U.S. attorneys who either send work to me or I work uh, in the reverse with them. But, you know, my name then would tend to, you know, come up, uh, you know, in the media yeah. at, at the same time. Does me no harm, harm particularly like younger. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it's good marketing and it's good for the client. It's a client, it's provided the client wants it. Yeah. I mean, I have many hundreds of clients I act for. Nobody will ever know. They will go to my grave because of obviously client confidentiality. Mm-hmm. But there are others who want the profile out there mm-hmm. and need the profile out there quite understandably to yeah. get that vindication. So it's really interesting. You know, you, you got into this media landscape, this uh, defamation landscape. Is libel the right word to use? I'm not even really familiar. No, it's defamation. There's defamation is made up of two potential factors. This is really good, Paul. See yeah. why you're on this bit. Could you actually explain, again, a really simple example. Rosk is sitting here. What do I need to do to defame him versus insult him? Okay. Well, you could just call him, for instance, a crook. Yeah. Okay, so let's just do it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, a crook is a specific allegation. It's an allegation of criminality. You could also call him an idiot. Mm-hmm. Now, the second one is mere vulgar abuse. Yeah. That's not actionable. The first one is because you are undermining, seeking to undermine his reputation. Interesting. Okay. Provided he's not a crook. You're not a crook. So that's, and then defamation is made up of libel, the written word, the okay. permanent form, yeah. and slander, 
the spoken word. Right. Slander is much more difficult to prove for obvious reasons, but mm -hmm. it's non-permanent. Whereas libel can take the form of you know a broadcast or newspaper report okay. or so something. Okay, so it's it's recorded, documented. You yeah. can refer back to it. So if I if I turn around and I call if I call him a crook on this podcast, that's libel because it's documented and it's recorded. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Really interesting. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, he's going to come to you after. Yeah. How much is this worth? Yeah, exactly. That's, I can just <laughs> and you're going to say you didn't listen. Yeah, no, you did no, not listen. I did listen, but that's. <laughs> so you you got into this really through a a, a chocolate eclair allegation. Yeah, it just a good into the media stuff like by by sheer coincidence. So by sheer what, what was it? You know, you, you do the chocolate eclair case, you get into the box and stuff. Like, how did you just? feel like this is my zone this is where I want to be what was it about it that just gave you the I, I, buzz I loved it I mean you couldn't compare it to anything else in the world I mean that's what's keeping me going at my stage I mean I love <laughs> the hunt I love being able to find solutions I love somebody to say they're dead you have no chance of winning that case that is the best scenario I can that's have that's the dog in the bone yeah it? and you do it and now we've moved on, of course, away beyond like the print media. We've very few cases against print media now. It's now primarily social media uh, and the online search engines moving on to AI. I mean, AI is going to be the big bogey for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are often with a platform still use the defense of in this side of the Atlantic, the Ecom directive. That's an EU directive, which effectively is, well, they claim gives them protection that they can, they're not a publisher. Uh, in the United States, it's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is basically supposed to give a get-out-of-jail-free uh, And is that basically that, hey, it's not us, it's our users posting, exactly, so you can't exactly. hold us accountable? We're not, we're, okay. we're not a publisher, basically. So it's this issue, you know, we're a platform, we're not a publisher. Yeah. And we have a number of cases pending, which is going to be t testing that again. I, I think it's absurd. I mean, there's no difference, in my opinion, between something posted on Facebook to a reader's letter in the Belfast Telegraph. Mm -hmm. Belfast Telegraph are responsible for anything they publish in terms of from a reader they're meant to vet it, check it for libel. What's the, what possible difference could there be yeah. in a posting on Facebook or Instagram? Yeah. If we so let's let's kind of unpack that a wee bit, okay? So um, let's say a core market in Belfast City Centre, uh, spirit of Belfast sculpture, you know the big swirly bit it's, just yeah. in the middle there. So if if I'm a social media company and I say you know well we're just a public space we're just a town square. Mm -hmm. If I go and I uh, print a big, sorry, Roscoe, we're picking on you a lot here. If I print a big poster of Roscoe and it has a picture of his face and it says, you are uh, a crook yeah. on it. And I, I, you know, not staple it, I would, I would stick it to that sculpture. Mm -hmm. Then I am liable rather than the town square. Of course. So what makes you have such strong opinions that no, the social media company is absolutely liable if they could take a, an argument like that? Because they're facilitating they're disseminating mm -hmm. the libel. Let's do another example. Yeah, yeah, please. If you buy a book on Amazon. Yeah. And Amazon, first, their first thing will be, we can't check every book. Mm -hmm. And we're just a distributor. So they're different from any other distributor in the world, any other publisher. <laughs> they're different. Uh, now, in fairness to them, they do have a point on the first one and the law protects them in terms of they're not expected to check every book. But once they're putting notice of a book containing ah, defamatory content, okay. they're on notice and they can't say, well, we can't check every book. You don't have to check every book. Yeah. You just, you've been told what's in that book. You've got to look at that book. Yeah. And as a result, we're saying it's defamatory. The ball's in your court. 
Interesting. And that's that is an initiative has been debated quite a bit. I yeah. mean, I absolutely one hundred percent that that they are responsible. Once I get to that point, they do they should, and, and it's the same applies to Facebook uh-huh. and Twitter and all the other sites. You know, if once they've got to be given an opportunity. I mean, they can't be expected to to check every single post to go up when it goes there. But once they've been put on notice, once they've been told. Once they know it's there, mm-hmm. it's, it's not for them to say, oh, look, we'll wait for a court hearing. That's what we normally get back. You know, wait <laughs> for the court, you know, 18 months' time, and they can't continue to disseminate well, the word, and then it becomes pointless. Yeah. And that, but that is what, they, that is what they, their stance is, you know. And so the, the whole thing's absurd, and AI has then pulled the rug out from all, even those arguments, because what the AI are saying now, as you know, it's the same people. It's Google, Microsoft, you know, Facebook. They're all behind the AI scenario. But they're saying, oh, we're not responsible for mm. a robot. I mean, we, we've had a situation where, you know, I act for a lot of publishers as well as for plaintiffs who act on both sides of the coin. And one publisher uh, contacted uh, one of these AI platforms and uh, basically said, look, uh, can you name any senior Irish legal figures who've been accused of abuse? And they named actual people. And this is on the, the AI platform comes out and it cited a report, a newspaper report dated the 14th of March in the publication that was making the inquiry in the first place. No such report existed. Totally, absolutely That is interesting because we've used chat GPT a few times. Yeah. Even simple, sim- something simple like, okay, um, we have a little device in the corner there called a stream deck, right? And if he pushes a button, it can turn all the lights off in the studio and all the... And we, we asked it, you know, uh, give me a step-by-step guide on how to set this up. It was total nonsense. Just pulled it out of thin air. But it wasn't actually real, but it looked like it was the truth. Yeah, Very interesting. To- totally. La- it's, that- it's such a bad liar as yeah, well. Exactly. <laughs> but, but um, you know, why... So- Say it for ChatGPT is Microsoft, or well, they're a 50% owner mm-hmm. of OpenAI who, who own ChatGPT. So, why should they not be liable? Mm. Why, why could we, and particularly with its foreseeability now, mm-hmm. because they've had various tests mm-hmm. and it's going down, so they know the warning. So, that's going to be the challenge mm-hmm. of the future. That's what we're working on at yeah. the moment to try to get that preempted, because it is going to be a serious problem. See, the difficulty is, you know, it's all very well. That, that particular publisher doing the test and they were doing it specifically mm-hmm. to test to see what might come out. Yeah. But if you're one of the senior legal figures that they've named and somebody else picks this up and then suddenly it starts to get legs, what, you know, yeah. well, that could destroy careers. Yeah. Could destroy reputations for life. And it's never, you know, the trouble is it's a bit like the Kevin Spacey situation yesterday and I was commenting on it in various media. Like, like the big problem is that, you know, the no smoke without fire situation, even with a clear verdict, a jury verdict, you get people, you know, because there's been so much going on, you know, your reputation never really recovers from it. Yes. I mean, I've asked many people, if you may recall, like a number of years ago, uh, quite a few uh, radio DJs were accused of sexual abuse mm-hmm. and personalities. I bet you, you can't name me the ones who were accused that got off, that were told they were totally innocent. The brain saves the salacious information permanently. Yeah. And once they're associated, they'll be just one of a number of names yeah. who are in it. Yeah. And to the point where if, if you want to uh, defame somebody and you pick a certain, you know, a, a sexual uh, accusation is, is perfect because it is so hard 
to rub off your record. Totally. Even if you are 100% innocent. No, absolutely. Particularly, yeah. you know, with the background of the Me Too movement, you know, you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're, you're assumed guilty yeah. uh, until proven innocent. And we've also got, I mean, I've been a subject of disinformation campaigns, again, from these particular opponents I'm talking about. And, you know, they're coming at me and like I would, should be reasonably well equipped to deal with <laughs> it. So what chance, you know, somebody who's not familiar with the way these mm-hmm. scenarios work, uh, it's very, very difficult to envisage a situation where there's going to be a, a surgery, a specific, a specific type of surgery that will deal with it quickly enough mm-hmm. to stop the damage. It's really, really interesting. I want to go back to um, what you said about distributors and Amazon because it, it kind of helped unlock the, the argument you were making about how these people are responsible because the reality is, you know, if Amazon sells a book or if, uh, you know, a post blows up on Facebook or any of the other social media platforms, the nature of their business models is they are profiting of off things that are not true, yep. things that are defamatory. Yeah, astute point. And that, that's a one. But more so, say for the sake of argument, you look at YouTube. Mm-hmm. And YouTube are a big problem, uh, you know, right across the board. Now, to be fair to Google, they'll say, look, we'll comply with any court order. And they do. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. If it's a court order, we will comply. In the jurisdiction that you get it. <laughs> So, you know, a court order in Belfast is not going to do you a lot of good in Switzerland. Yeah. But anyway, they do that. But the, the, the problem you have with all these situations, you know, they, once it's out there, once, you know, the thing is out there, you either have to get a worldwide solution. Mm-hmm. It's no use getting for one, for one jurisdiction or, you know, over another. And they are, they're sitting there saying, look, you know, well, look, that's fine. But what, I, what worries me is that the person who's, Posting the disinformation on YouTube is just one example. Yeah. I mean, any any of the, the sites, they're getting paid. Yeah, they get paid for posting yeah. disinformation and defaming yeah. other people. And the way the platforms are set up, and Roscoe knows as well. Roscoe's a whiz when it comes to YouTube and things like that. Is the more explosive, it's like tabloids. The more explosive and salacious, and yeah. in some ways untrue, the content is that you're put out. The more attention you'll get, the more money you'll make, and it's just a big kind of cycle in that That's way. A very good point, actually. Yeah, very astute point. <laughs> just taking a note here. I <laughs> but yes, no, that's that, and that's absolutely right. And this is the absurdity of the whole situation, you know. And that yet nobody. I mean, you know, I certainly get the feeling that governments either feel that they don't want to scare the the platforms away because yes. they've obviously come in particularly into Ireland they've mm-hmm. come in for tax tourism reasons yeah. not libel tourism note uh, or you know they they actually these platforms have a bigger financial war chest than most governments I mean you know we had the uh, President Biden you know hosted uh, the main uh, players in the AI platform world last week. I mean, have a look and see what come out of that. I mean, I'm still trying to find, like, what? <laughs> and, th- and then their, their strategy now is, I mean, their approach, I should say, whether it's strategy or not, but they're, they're talking about, you know, the future. We've got to have safeguards for the future. I'm worried about now. Yeah. I'm worried about this very, this very moment now. Yeah. And yet they can push it, the issue right back. It's crazy. Because, it, like, I'm kind of sitting here and I have a picture in my head of, like, you're kind of in the business of trying to put the genie back in the bottle. It's a very, very hard job. And I, the more we get into it, the harder that job's going to be. Exactly. So whenever they say, yeah, let's let's sort this out for the future, it's like, are you going to even be able to? Yeah, totally. And this in the scenario will have changed completely. I mean, the genie will be out and down, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, around yeah, the yeah, world yeah. about 5,000 times. Be, yeah, yeah, but then yeah, they yeah. haven't laughed at it, they're not uh, <laughs> definitely laughing at everyone. No, and that, and that is just the big problem. And we've got to try and, you know, as a society, 
we've got to face it because I would not have any confidence in any government whatsoever mm-hmm. taking appropriate action. A, having the will to take the action, yeah. never mind the ability. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of speak uh, a little generally here. Something I love to do whenever we have people like yourself in the studio is kind of apply it to just like everyday people going to work, doing their thing. How can we keep ourselves right whenever it comes to things like defamation, uh, things like libel, like keep give us a little bit of best practice in general terms of how we can keep ourselves in, in the right. Very simple. Think before you tweet. <laughs> simple as that. Nothing more need to be said. My granny would be proud of you. That's <laughs> great. Very, very good. Um, I want to go back to uh, two words that you said earlier. Supreme confidence. Where on earth does that come from? I have no idea. And I didn't realize I had it. Uh, it just it just is there. I mean, I've never once worried about paying that overdraft off. I yeah. mean, you know, with hindsight, I must have been mad. I mean, you know, there was no guarantees that I could make any sort of success in the law mm-hmm. or in anything, for that matter. I mean, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just have always, I've just known, I don't know, I've always felt destined mm-hmm. for something. I know it's an awful corny thing to it's say. Great thing people to would say. be laughing. But, great thing to say. But that's, that's what driven me. And it still mm-hmm. drives me on, but I still think there's a lot more in me to be able to do much more, more achieve more. Yeah. And, you know, I've never been frightened of taking it. Maybe it's the old boy from Belfast scenario comes <laughs> in that, you know, everyone keeps repeating this phrase, like, while well, I come into somebody from Belfast, these yeah, international yeah, yeah. stars. But, you know, I just, there's, there's very few things that would scare me off. In fact, if somebody tries to do it, that actually gets me the mm. other way around. Uh, but quite often we get American attorneys saying, oh, I'll see you in court or we'll do this, do that. I'm going, yeah, I'm trembling in my boots, you know. Like, <laughs> I've had, had a wee bit more serious press for one happening than that, I can tell you. And that's maybe one of the things that we've all learnt in this part of the world, you know, yeah, given, yeah. given our history, our recent yeah. history. Yeah, it's interesting not not to make light of any of your experience whatsoever. There's a book, um, famous book called "The Obstacle Is the Way," and it kind of talks about that the challenges and the the things that the hands that you've been dealt can actually end up being your superpower. And I was thinking whenever you were you were talking about the juries, how actually your working class background has actually served you very yeah. very well. Yeah, and yeah. that's a wonder. That's a really lovely thing. Yeah, oh, no, I think absolutely. And it gives you an understanding. I mean, it's one of the problems that the royal family have, for instance. And I mean, I've acted for a number of members and that. And it's just they have not, they have been deprived of the experience, the knowledge and the understanding that that brings of, you know, mixing with people, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And it's not, you know, it's not their fault. They just, you know, they just were never given that opportunity. And that as a result... They are unable, in my opinion, for the most part, certainly the, the older generation, to communicate. Now, the Queen herself was an exception because she played the role of monarch yeah. to the letter. And she had to do it. But she was able to, she lived in a different time, a different time period. We're now living in a completely different scenario. And the public are very forgive, unforgiving. You know, I've sort of spent my life trying to utilize and act in before a court of law. Mm-hmm. But now, more and more, increasingly, I'm battling in the court of public opinion. Really interesting point. And it is, and it is a court of public opinion, you know, as a very harsh judge, particularly in the era of social media. Mm-hmm. But that's really what we, certainly in my world, that's, that is as important yeah. as any court of law. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you, you're, you've talked till the, the cows come home about cancel culture, but, yeah. you know, there are people who... Once cancelled, it's very, very hard to come back from. And that's yeah. the, the court of public opinion, like you talk yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. Your lunch with uh, W.J. Walker. Yeah. 
What did that do for you? What did he say? Was there anything you took away from that? Yeah. Well, I sort of did. I I was uh, much less perplexed than he was because I just sort of, you know, I was quite, I was up for anything, you know, yeah. give it a go. And I never really, to be frank, I suppose my, my feeling and probably the reason why I'm going into these things, I've got it, I don't really think too far ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, I tend to just see the problem, work out what can be done there and now. I'm not, uh, I just I have no toleration for people that, Push thing, put things off or push them back. I like things done right away. Yeah. Then, now, and hit them. So when I met with him, you know, it was just, that was, it was the moment uh, that I was hitting with. And he was, he was great crack. I really enjoyed it, you know, and he, and yeah. he just kept shaking the head, you know, saying, look, you know, I just, this is, I've never mm-hmm. had this before. And he was a man, I don't know, we probably well into his career, shall we say. So he'd probably seen quite a bit, but I just said, look, you know, I really fancy the Caribbean. I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be a nice, uh, you know, be a much, much better climate than Belfast. You know? So, I mean, uh, kind of like loosely ties into to this. Kind of post-COVID, the idea that you can run a business in a place like Belfast and have international customers and clients, that makes sense. Pre-COVID, I think it's really interesting that you were able to manage all of these international clients right here? I mean, did, did you ever have an LA premise or did you ever kind of spend significant portions of your career overseas? And if so, why did you come back here? Why Why is being rooted to this place important yeah. to you? Well, I mean, I do very little work in Northern Ireland. Very little work. Uh, we've had a few profile cases, which the media have reported. Most of our work comes into London, our London office, and then it's channeled into Dublin, where the social media platforms are headquartered nowadays, and that would be the main. Mm-hmm. But we have our main base here in Belfast uh, because a, you know, this is my home, mm-hmm. this is my country, and uh, you know, I, I, the lawyers, we have high, the highest quality lawyers you'll get anywhere in the world here, mm-hmm. um, and you know, all my lawyers have got those two qualities that I mentioned earlier, male, Judgment female, and or whatever, backbone. Uh, and uh, you know, and so. Whereas in terms of being around, I travel a lot. I mean, I'm in uh, California quite a bit, uh, East Coast of the States, Middle East, France. I have to travel quite a bit. And as I say, I spend my week, maybe one day, two days in London, maybe one day in, in Dublin and a couple of days in Belfast, really depending. I, I've been spending I, just for different reasons more time in Belfast recently this summer mm-hmm. than I normally would. But I spend all my time chasing my own tail, <laughs> going around as I keep saying to everybody, you know, Belfast, London, Dublin. You know, at, when at the end of the week, I mean, my wife was to say, who would be much more uh, commercial and I would be asking, what have you achieved? I mean, what have you done? What have you earned in the business? <laughs> and sometimes I'm sitting there like a schoolboy going, you know, I'm really not sure what yeah. I've earned money. But I said, you know, a few good challenges. <laughs> but, you know, maybe in terms of remuneration, maybe it's not, it doesn't reflect, shall we say, uh, the, what the, what the amount of work that I've actually been putting into it. But the nature of my work, I've got to go to the client still, as I mm-hmm. say. I never lose sight of the fact that I'm only a service provider. Yeah. You know, and no matter how much publicity I get, I mean, mm-hmm. I've been to pajama parties at Hugh Hefner's mansion. I've been on Tom Cruise, a set with Tom Cruise many times. I've had lunch at Buckingham Palace numerous occasions. I've done all those things. Sure. Bottom line is, I'm just a service provider. Yeah. I've got to travel to the clients, got to try to provide a service to them. And, you know, at the end of the day, you try to do your best yeah. and you try to win. Yeah. Or should I say, you make sure you win. Absolutely. So, I mean, the phrase that I, is kind of going through my head at the minute is, you're the, the kind of guy who fits the definition of the love of the game. Yeah. yeah. And so That's the thing that lights you up. And even just seeing, like, it's emanating out of you. Look, 
Well, hopefully it is still. I mean, that's, I sometimes wonder. I look in the mirror some mornings after I've had very little sleep. And <laughs> right, is there another day left in me? Can I do this <laughs> one more time, one last time? You know, it's a bit like the, the boxer. You know, I remember uh, I got oh, some incredible analogies from the late Barney Eastwood. You know, and sometimes like the boxers, he used to always say, like, you know, once they're knocked out, once they hit the canvas. They're never really the same again. Mm. They've always got to keep going forward. They're all good going forward. And I suppose that analogy applies to me, you know, touch wood. I haven't been knocked yet, but of course that could be any time, any day, any hour or whatever. But, you know, you've just got to keep going forward, keep, you know, charging after it. And the whole thing is, you know, the worst thing you can do in my world Mm -hmm. is put yourself in a position where you can only react. Mm. You've got to be proactive. You've got to go forward the whole time. Think out if your client's got a good case, you make sure you get it out there and you go on the attack. If he hasn't got a good case, you get it resolved or you don't start it and you advise him bluntly. You know, you've got to make sure you make these decisions. I mean, my trouble is, I mean, I've acted for some very controversial people over the years. Uh, Like, as I say, I act for people uh, accused of abuse and victims of abuse. Probably more the latter. I mean, I've got record settlements for, for, for them, but... You know, I, as an officer of the court, every, I take the view that everyone is entitled to justice. Mm-hmm. And in the early stages, particularly when you're acting for these people, I have no way of knowing who's telling the truth yeah. and who's not. Because there have been many, many innocent people who have been caught up in this, mm-hmm. who if I were being, you know, totally objective, you know, if somebody's accused, you would walk away. Everyone is entitled to legal representation. Yeah. Doesn't matter what they've done, what they could have done or whatever. Because if once today that that's the taken away. We can forget about our democracy. We can forget about fairness in society. We mm. can forget actually about just even existing because we might as well, it's a free for all for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's whenever, you know, people start to storm the White House. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, couple of questions for me to close and then we'll go to you, Roscoe, for the closing question. I haven't got a mic on. Mate, can you turn it on? <laughs> <laughs> well, then I will do the closing question. Um, in your career so far, what has been the most challenging moment and how have you overcome it? Uh, I think there have been many challenging moments. Uh, ironically, uh, one of them is, is, is happening at the moment as we speak. As I said, there are people trying to undermine me uh, for their own purposes. Um, you know, I've been subject, I've been quite fortunate in my 40-year career that, you know, i get the same respect back that I give to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had difficulties with two, one with a national broadcaster. And whenever my book comes out in January, you'll get the full oh, story. Oh, great. I didn't here. know you had a book. That's uh, fab. Yeah. Great. So from Hollywood with uh, one L, L. To, Holly, to Hollywood with two L's and Class. all the tweed suits. But it's, uh, you know, that they tried to take me out mm-hmm. uh, and that was resolved. And then this other scenario I'm dealing with. So that, was, that's, that is and remains a big challenge for me. The other challenge I've had is probably, uh, you know, I would I think I would have to go back probably to the Eastwood case because yeah. everybody, everybody thought we were going to get get destroyed in it. And, uh, you know, I just knew, I knew from the outset, Barney Eastwood knew from the outset we were going to win it. Yeah. Uh, he had uh, he was the epitome of backbone. Uh, <laughs> because Barney used to love going into the witness box. Absolutely loved it. You know, we had he was the opposite of most clients. You know, we had to hold him back and persuade him not to go in, and he loved doing with a cut and thrust. Yeah. Uh, to, to him, it was very appealing. But that would have been definitely my, my most. Uh, I think still, and that's nineteen ninety one, ninety two. So what are we talking about? Thirty years ago, yeah. and that still remains the same. I don't think 
uh, I could say that there were other challenges arrest mm-hmm. you know we managed to find mm-hmm. a slot for Fab Roscoe quick idea for you see if you stop recording on the zoom you should be able to turn your, your mic on then we'll get you in for the last one because I always like to have you in there man uh, no just go for it see, see how we go okay. we're going to take a rest for a here uh, final question for me Paul We've taken the risk and let's taking see if it the works risk, out. Let's see. Uh, most successful moment of your career so far? Like a real punch the sky, like elated? Uh, it's, that's probably uh, an even more difficult one to answer. Uh, and again, I keep, I suppose I'm going back to Eastwood again, you know, when the jury came back with 450,000. Probably the best one, the best one was a case I did for Rosanna Davison, former Miss World against Ryanair. Uh, they, this was in Dublin. Um, and she uh, had been accused by Ryanair uh, being uh, racist in the comments she made, and Ryanair uh, wouldn't settle, fought till the end, so we went into court and we had a vicious, vicious one-week battle. Um, judge like, threatened to stop the case on a number of occasions, uh, and uh, she, she was quite, quite controversial. The jury it was a 12-person jury in Dublin as opposed to seven in Belfast, and we had difficulty with one or two of the jurors and the uh, judge intervened. And eventually, and it was, I just didn't know what way I was going to go. But if we, like, again, I just fought. I just, we just fought it until mm. the end. And we got 80,000. She was awarded in the end. Class. It wasn't as large as I was hoped for, but it was a, it gave her absolute vindication. Yeah. And in fairness, uh, Ryanair contacted me within days afterwards and said, look, no hard feelings. And I've been there on our legal panel ever since. <laughs> And That's Michael O'Leary, with regards to a friend, I think he's one of the, <laughs> the best operators in the business. He's one businessman I've got nothing but absolute admiration for. He's absolutely a real character. He should have been on stage if he, if he wasn't the success <laughs> he is as a comedian, but he's, uh, he's, uh, we have a great crack together in many of the, the battles we've done. But that, that, that's the, the kind of the cool thing about uh, being so focused on being a world-class service provider is game respects game, you know, and your opposition will be like, hey, this guy's pretty good. Let's get him. Let's get him on our side next well, time, you know. Well, I'm, I'm good at creating perceptions. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, my man. All right. Uh, if you can go back in a time machine uh, to when you were 18 years old, what would you say? I would say um, I would probably have chosen a different career with hindsight, probably. But if I did do that, I think I would have regretted it. So I think probably uh, at 18, I would think, yeah, you made the right right decision, even though it was my mother, uh, <laughs> who would have to take full responsibility for pushing me in that direction. I mean, my eldest son, uh, none of my four kids want to do law. And uh, my eldest son uh, said, look, absolutely didn't like the long hours I worked. I mean, 15, 16 hour days didn't appeal to him. So he decided to become a doctor and specialise in respiratory and infectious diseases. So you can imagine what he was doing over the past three or four years in the front line in the NHS and hospitals. But I think he still would say that... Uh, He's got the better deal. Absolutely. But, I, but as I say back then, yes, he's achieving he's saving lives. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Paul, I've um, absolutely loved this. Uh, really, really colourful, really insightful. Always love learning things. And you've had an incredible career. I love that uh, you're so proud to come from Belfast. I love that so much of your business is based out of here. And I really appreciate you giving us your time today. I really, thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Thank you very awesome. much. Thank you so much for listening and watching and we hope to see you again next time. Sure. That is a wrap. Good shit. Amazing stuff. Just want to give one final thanks to NI Connections for making today's episode possible. 
You can sign up for their free email newsletter at niconnections.com where you'll get straight to your inbox interesting stories from people who are from this place but are living and working overseas. You'll also get some really interesting insider information about best practices of how to move back home or how to start a business here and all this other really, really interesting stuff. niconnections.com is the place to do that. And we're so, so grateful that we're able to keep this series going thanks to NI Connections support. Have a great rest of your day. And thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Cheers.